0: Hi everybody, it's Brian Janikowski. Uh, podcast date is actually October the 19th, a Thursday, so a day out of the normal. Um, I'm Christian Thwaites.
1: I'm Emily Takenberts, and let's get started with this week's Market Chat. So Christian, today we had a little bit of a drop in the market uh, in the opening of the day, uh, although it did uh, recover by the end of the trading day. Can you tell us a little bit about this and what it might mean?
0: Yes, the market opened uh, about 0.7% lower. Um, so it, it was about 20 points on the, on the S&P, which is trading at about 2,500. Um, and like a lot of these corrections that happen, uh, I think a lot of the rationale is post-dated. It's not that it's going on and, and people are explaining it in real time. The thing happens and then they explain it after the event, so <laughs> I think what we had was we had a bit of a dip in Hong Kong. Um, we had some comments from the central bank chief in China uh, talking about uh, some some potential asset price declines, uh, and then there was a rumor, which which seems to be true, that uh, Apple is cutting some of the uh, some of its orders for production of the iPhone. Whatever we're up to now, iPhone eight. So there's a lot of expectations, obviously, on that product and that stock, largest market cap in the world. Uh, so I think a combination of these things just led to a, a short-term sell-off. But as, as we discussed earlier, and we'll show it in the written blog, the correction uh, was pretty short-lived and the market came back during the rest of the trading day.
1: And could you even call this volatility? I mean, if this is just a short-term drop and it recovered, uh, you know, is this does this point to any sort of any further volatility to come?
0: I, I don't think so. And people have been commenting on the lack of volatility. Our markets too complacent. are investors too optimistic. You know, what could go wrong? Is there a big run up? And then we've had notable economists like Richard Tarlow just got the uh, Nobel Prize, and, and uh, Robert Schiller you know, feeling that the market's a little bit toppy, but. Uh, what has to put into context, there is low volatility, but there's also low volatility in other parts of our lives and the markets. And exhibit number one is central banks. Uh, I mean, central banks have telegraphed incredibly clearly what they're likely to do on interest rates. I mean, the Fed has the infamous dot plot where they show you in in pictures that uh, that a kindergarten child could understand that they're not going to move rates very rapidly over the next two or three years so that lack of uncertainty means that there's less likely to be volatility you get volatility when there's uncertainty so you have one very big player in the market the central banks saying that this is what we're going to do and we're going to carry on telling you until we do it so we that's that's sort of one reason i think for low volatility another one is that we've got Pretty low volatile growth. We're just clicking along as we've discussed here many times. At at, at best a two and a half percent growth rate. Uh, we might get a slightly higher in one quarter, and less in one, less in another. But that seems to be the sort of equilibrium rate we've had over the last few years. And I don't see anything. In the short-term horizon, which is going to change that, so we're we're sort of in this period of you know things aren't very volatile, and I think you know stocks are are following that, as indeed are bonds.
1: You also wrote about some of the three specifically the tailwinds um, that you see in terms of that's driving uh, global growth. Um, can you talk about those tailwinds that you see and and what they mean?
0: Yeah. Yes. Very simply, uh, uh, that what we've got happening in the markets right now is U.S. growth going well, synchronized global growth, which is just a way of saying that the EU, the Europe, which we've talked about again here, is is clocking along at a at a nice pace. It's been a 2017 has been a good year for them. Some of the political. Risks have gone out of the market, excluding Catalonia, but uh, others have gone out of the market. Japan is a little bit more stable. China is a little bit more stable. So you've had this new global growth, and we haven't had that since 2008. We've had emerging markets up and doing well in 0809, with the Western economies doing less well, and Europe going through two pretty pretty bad. You know, eurozone crisis. We've had a commodity collapse. We've had metals collapse. We've had an energy collapse, and back. So everything is sort of you know lined up right now. There's no one area which was the cause up until about six months ago, where something was an outlier and in in, not in a good way. Mm. So we've got this this U.S. growth. Secondly, the kind of global growth, and then the third one really is that the dollar is is a little weaker, but not sort of on its back and and causing concern weaker. So that helps uh, U.S. exporters and U.S. markets quite a bit, and it doesn't also at the same time hurt foreign exporters by making their currencies particularly strong. So These three things, you know, have come together quite nicely, and we're sort of in the middle of that.
1: And do you see this sustaining? Do you see U.S. growth <laughs> sustaining?
0: I, uh, For now, there doesn't seem to be anything sort of big in the way. Obviously sort of exogenous factors can come at you very, very quickly. Um, and there's always risks to the market, um, uh, political risks, uh, whether or not tax cuts go through. But I don't think the market's expecting that to support growth very much. It's just particularly good for capital rather than labor. Um, and um, so I, I do, I don't keep looking for things that, you know, can go wrong. And there are plenty, uh, but there doesn't seem to be sort of over overbought or overextended positions in the market right now.
1: So today is a um, an anniversary of sorts of the 1987 crash. Um, I'd like you to explain um, a little bit about what happened. And you know, everyone kind of knows what happened. You know, the The Dow dropped over 500 points. Um, but what were some of the forces at play behind that correction and behind that crash? And you know. Is there anything that we can learn um, or extrapolate from that experience to today's market, or is it completely unrelated and they're two different um, types of scenarios that we're looking with between then and now?
0: There, there are, there were, there are some similarities, but uh, but not particularly pressuring ones. And I, th- you know, think what happened in 1997 is a bit like what we discussed earlier. It's a little bit of backfilling as opposed to, oh, this is going to go on. There were some people who saw it coming. Tudor Jones, for example, was very prescient on this. But what I think had happened fundamentally was the market had run up a lot and the bond market had been very weak. And some people, if you get a divergence in those two major asset classes, something's going to go wrong eventually. Um, You can have them sort of moving gently in different directions, which we just discussed, but moving that quickly in the bond market you know, went from about an eight percent yield up to a ten percent yield very, very quickly. So that's about a twenty percent price decline. So that was happening. Uh, there was some other, um, you know, macro and political issues. There was more pressure to uh, for stimulus from Germany, which is a story which is pretty much the same today. Uh, there was some trouble in Iran, uh, but I think it was it was sort of a number of things bottling up, uh, and then there was this thing called portfolio insurance, which. Uh, uh, you know, I remember at the time the most extraordinary companies were funding that. I mean, Etna, which we all know now as a as a healthcare carrier, was a very big provider of portfolio insurance. You know, people who had no business providing uh, portfolio securities downside protection products, and they were doing it in spades. And so, when that when there was a short correction in the market, this spiraled, and uh, you had the the more things went down, the more the programs told people to sell stuff, and so it just Fell right into an abyss, and uh, in those days it was all person to person market, no one would take the other side of the bid. So things have changed a little bit. The market is a heck of a lot better uh, organized and regulated now, um, and so I don't really see that today's um, markets are terribly like 1987. You can overlay a chart, in fact, we have, but it makes the point that you can overlay any chart at any time period and get get it to tell the story you want but I don't really see other than the run-up a a lot of conditions for a repeat of 1987 and in fact given the Brady Commission's one of its biggest um, recommendations this is this amazing commission that reported within 60 days of the event in one of their big big recommendations was circuit breakers, which are now in place in all the major markets. So, you know, there's there's a forced halt if, if uh, stocks, I think, fall within 10% and then markets close uh, at a number after that. I can't remember what it is. But anyway, they're, they're, you would never get to a 30% within a day without some major circuit mm-hmm. breaking or halts to trading, which uh, which would give time people to collect their thoughts.
1: Do, uh, the, do the prevalence of index funds and indexing in today's market uh, open it up uh, to be vulnerable to these ma- major market swings?
0: That's a really good question, and that, that's a very a big debate right now. Uh, obviously the uh, the ETF providers, BlackRock, put out a paper last week which said no, possibly not, not at all. And there are others who are people who feel that it contributes to momentum investing where essentially you just continue to buy more of things which are going up. And you continue to sort of inflate their prices, and you buy them because they went up yesterday. And if they went up yesterday, they'll go up today, and then you buy it again tomorrow. So, uh, I, I, it, it remains to be seen. I, I, I obviously we invest in ETFs. We do as a firm. We do we do personally, and you know that they, they they're a big mover in the market. But I but I'm not sure that they can necessarily. You can't point the finger at things and say and contribute to them and say, and they are causing a lot of disruption. Uh, and market inefficiencies uh, the the evidence just isn't there uh, at the moment so I'm you know I'm not uh, I'm, I'm always concerned we're paid paid to be concerned about investments but uh, uh, but I can't I can't really point the finger at ETFs and say that there's going to be a, a massive problem in the market caused by ETFs
1: finally uh, the Dow hit the 2300 mark this week twenty thousand uh, 23,000 mark this week uh, why is this important why may it not be
0: um, it's not important from a market uh, perspective it's a headline number and the only reason we use the Dow is there's hundred and thirty years of data um, and no self-respecting fund manager or stock or mutual fund or any other uh, investor would benchmark themselves against mm. the Dow Jones. You're much better off doing it against the S&P. It's price weighted, which means that a company with a high price like Goldman Sachs and I think Boeing are the two highest prices at $250, are, are, are many times the weight of someone like a Pfizer that has a $50 uh, price. But they can be the same size company in terms of market cap. So it's price driven. And we had Uh, good numbers from um IBM and I think United Healthcare this week, week, which are both Mm -hmm. sort of you know big constituents on the price level. So, anyway, it's that's that. Uh, I I don't think we can read you know too much into it because it's kind of a funny index. And now it only takes three or four percent for another thousand threshold to be reached. So, it was a big deal when the Dow hit a thousand and two thousand. Um, and even 5,000, but, you know, we can click off 21, 22, 23, 24 within, you know, a couple of years now, which, um, which is what we've done. So it's, it's nice to see, but um, it, it's, it's a headline grabber. Don't spend a lot of time thinking about uh, what it means for overall markets.
1: Follow-up question to that. Given uh, your comments on the Dow and the fact that, um, you know, all indexes are not created equal, um, when you are picking an index fund fund, what index do you recommend?
0: It depends what your objective is, whether it's obviously domestic, international, but let's just sort of think about it in the US. Um, S&P, uh, there's a number of different index providers um, on the domestic side, S&P, Russell, and Vanguard has its own semi-proprietary indexes. Uh, the S&P is very good. I mean, it's, it's, it's well thought out, it's committee driven. Uh, there's a quality bias to it because they don't uh, allow companies which are fresh on the market without a trading history and profit history to be in the constituent, and they've also tightened up their um, governance procedures, which is why they didn't allow Snap to enter the S&P a few months ago, which I applaud them for that. Uh, so I think you know S&P is a very very good index to have uh, in. In, in in domestic stock investing, um, and um, better than some of the 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 other competitors, which are which are perfectly good indexes. They're just trying to do different things. It's mm-hmm. not that they're you know less smart than S and P. They just do uh, different things. And I but I think for an investor, the S and P is a Standard and Poor is a very good index provider to use.
1: Thank you, Christian. Thanks to you for listening.
0: Thanks, everybody. And here's the uh, what do we call it? Disclosure. Disclosure. There we go. Please note this discussion of our investments and investment strategy, including our research investment process, represents our investments and investment strategy at the day of this commentary. Subject to name without change subject to change without notice. We cannot assure all the type of investments discussed in this commentary without form any other investment strategy in the future, nor can we guarantee that such investments will present the best or an attractive risk adjusted investment in the future. This is for general information purposes only. Reference to an individual security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell that security. The securities mentioned in this commentary are only several of the successful and unsuccessful. Investments by us do not represent all the securities we have purchased, sold or recommended. Although we deem reliable the source of the statistical and other information referred to in this commentary, we cannot guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any statements or numerical data. Past performance is no indication of future results.